The words we choose say a great deal about us. Whether we're giving a formal speech, a pep talk, or a celebratory toast, we use language that helps convey our thoughts, and that gives people a sense of who we are. Gene Shepard, that master of audio storytelling, crafted a vivid picture of his father in a Christmas story. His old man, he said, quote, worked in profanity the way other artists might work in oils or clay. It was his true medium, a master. But think about the words and phrases you tend to favor. Do you refer to yourself more than you refer to others? Well, it's only a matter of changing from singular to plural. I says something much different than we. Leaders are scrutinized in everything they do. The vision they set, the plans they execute, the things they say. It's only natural that we draw a connection between leadership and communication. And really, that's what I do. What if leaders could be more deliberate about the words they choose and the phrases they construct? Perhaps empathy and truth might take hold, and ultimately, trust. And that's a language in which leaders ought to be fluent. Have you ever admired a leader and wondered just what it is that makes her who she is? How he came to embrace the things that advanced him? Welcome to Timeless Leadership, where we look at the principles that define success. This is a show for leaders at all stages of their careers who aspire to understand what it truly means to be a leader. And who is a leader? Dolly Parton said, If your actions inspire others to dream more, learn more, do more, and become more, you are a leader. Together, we'll explore key principles, not only in the sense of fundamentals, but also in the ethical sense, the habits, character traits, and virtues that form the backbone of leadership, principles that are just as relevant and essential in the 21st century as they were in the first century. This is Timeless Leadership. Hello and welcome to Timeless Leadership, where we explore the principles and virtues that accompany successful and admirable leaders. I'm your host, Scott Monty. Feel free to listen to and follow Timeless Leadership wherever you get your podcasts. We release new episodes every other week, and on the alternate weeks, you can listen to Storytime. It's a five-minute show that features familiar names and events, but from a much different perspective. It's an exercise in storytelling, which is an essential skill for every leader. It's in a separate podcast feed, but you can find it on the Timeless and Timely site. And I've got a link right here in the show notes. So take some time to poke around there and subscribe to the newsletter while you're at it. Now, what I do there on a regular basis is to capture human nature and leadership in our ever-changing world through the lens of history and literature, and philosophy. And it also provides some of the topics that I use in my speeches. If I can help you or your team, please just give me an email at timeless at scottmonte.com. And one more thing. Could you do me a favor as you listen? Please share this episode or tell people that you care about about this podcast. Your recommendation, your word, is the highest praise that I could ask for. Now, if you remember in the last episode, we appealed to nerds everywhere in our conversation with Curtis Armstrong, who you might remember from Revenge of the Nerds. Well, this time, we're going to appeal to your inner word nerd as we talk with Benjamin Dreyer. So, if you are indeed the word nerd type, you get bonus content if you're a paying subscriber of Timeless and Timely in our Saturday edition of the newsletter called Off the Clock. It's a quirky look at language and history. You might want to check it out while you're there on the site. Now let's go check out 
what Benjamin Dreyer has to say. Right is the ring of words when the right man rings them. Robert Louis Stevenson wrote, Bright is the ring of words when the right man rings them. And if you're a writer, you want Benjamin Dreyer ringing yours, perhaps ringing them in a blue pencil. As Vice President, Executive Managing Director, and Copy Chief of Random House, it's Dreyer's job to see that he and his team fine-tune the words of authors under a variety of imprints. He began his publishing career as a freelance proofreader and copy editor. In 1993, he became a production editor at Random House, overseeing books by writers including Michael Shaban, Edmund Morris, Susan Laurie Parks, Michael Pollan, Peter Straub, and Calvin Trillin. He's copy-edited books by authors including E.L. Doctorow, David Ebershoff, Frank Rich, and Elizabeth Strout, as well as Let Me Tell You, a volume of previously uncollected work by Shirley Jackson. A graduate of Northwestern University, Benjamin Dreyer lives in New York City. And his latest book is Dreyer's English, an utterly correct guide to clarity and style. Benjamin Dreyer, welcome to Timeless Leadership. Thank you so much for having me. Uh, I can't tell you what a thrill this is. We were talking a little bit before the show. Um, you know, I, I'm, a, I'm a big fan of the written word uh, and of the spoken word, obviously, since this is a podcast. So tell me just what is it, and I'm sure my listeners uh, share this kind of curiosity, what is it that a copy chief does? Okay, that's, that, that's a good and direct and big question with a lot of answers, so let me try to give it to you as best I can. Um, as copy chief of the Random House division of the behemoth corporation called Penguin Random House, um, I, am, I am the person in charge of the textual integrity of the particular imprints that belong to the Random House division. How am I doing so far? So far, so good. Not too much jargon, but uh, I appreciate so, so it. The, 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 just, just so that listeners know what we're, what we're talking about, the imprints of the Random House division of Penguin Random House include the imprint that is, in fact, called Random House, uh, the Modern Library, which is the oldest imprint in the division, um, the Dial Press, One World, Hogarth, Ballantine, Bantam, Dell, Delacorte, Delray for you science fiction fans, um, uh, the Crown imprints, and uh, and a few others. Uh, so as as copy chief, I have this army of people who are called production editors, who are the people who very specifically do the job of squiring a book from the time the book's actual editor and the author have said, yes, this is the book that we want to publish. Uh, from that moment, it needs a lot of things done to it, of course, including it, need, it needs to be copy edited, it needs to be proofread. So I have all these people in my department who were in charge of hiring the copy editors and the proofreaders who do that work. Now, that's a few hundred titles, original titles a year. It's, it's, a, it's a lot of books. And our collective goal is to make sure that every book that we do is published in, as I always like to say, the best possible version of itself that it can be published in, which means a lot of things. It means that everything in it is spelled properly. It means that everything in it is coherent. It means that everything in it is punctuated as best as it possibly can be. The ultimate goal being to publish a book that is as arguably perfect as a book can be. Now, because we're all human beings, um, we don't always attain perfection, but I, I can certainly say with some authentic pride that because I, as copy chief, 
know, among other things, every single reprint correction we process for all of our books, because it's a little way of you know keeping quality control going, we process a very small number of reprint corrections. So we, we hit our marks uh, over and over and over again. And is there a goal to which you hold your staff accountable every year? Is there a number that you try to, uh, to hit in order to keep that quality at that level? Well, I mean, what we're aiming for, of course, is to is is that the book should be perfect, that the book should be flawless. Um, if a book ends up having three, four, five, eight, ten reprint corrections, it's like that's fair. You know, the, the, these things do happen. Um, if it turns out that it's more than that, and again, and it so rarely is, that's a conversation to be had. But everybody does their job really well. I, I would imagine so. And look, uh, I, I have to admit, a, a certain trepidation on approaching this conversation with you because I'm trying to mind all of my P's and Q's, every single word that comes out of my mouth, comma. <laughs> and, <laughs> and um, you know, how I put sentences together. And I would imagine that people, when they interact with you, with your staff, uh, they may be a little more mindful of how they communicate, either in writing or speaking. And I'm curious to know how you might actually um, balance that natural fear or trepidation that people might have with a sense of, oh, I don't know, humanity and comfort and calm when, when they approach you. I mean, the thing is, for one thing, if we were to read a precise transcription of everything that comes out of my mouth, um, we would certainly see any number of things that, as a copy editor, I would be repairing. Um, I have verbal tics just like everybody else does. I also, of course, have writing tics like every other writer does. Um, um, he said, um... Uh, when I am speaking with people who I sense are a bit self-conscious about speaking with me, um, I will try often to say some variation on, you know, my job as a copy chief, my job as a copy editor is, is to do the best I can to improve written text. I'm not really taking notes on what comes out of your mouth. Um, but, you know, that also happens sometimes uh, you know, in 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 emails, you know, every now and then, even somebody that I've been working with for a very long time will make the joke and I can I'll keep my hands down. So I, I'm just telling you I'm doing air quotes. Uh, we'll make the joke um, about always being a little afraid to send me an email. Uh, you know, I, I read emails in, in the same spirit as I read books when I'm reading for pleasure, I, I am pretty good at turning off certain aspects of my brain that are not useful to that kind of communication. Well, that's, that's encouraging um, because I think we, we all, we've, we've all come across the errant grammar Nazi online. Uh, and I know that's a loaded term. Um, and, and you actually have something to say about grammar as well in your book. And by the way, just to repeat for folks who weren't paying attention in the introduction, the book is Dreyer's English, an utterly correct uh, guide to clarity and style. Uh, Benjamin, what did you have to say about grammar in the book? The first thing that I think, as I recall, that I say about grammar is that it's one of my least favorite subjects. Um, I was not given a great education in the English language, uh, in, in, uh, in elementary school, in high school, in, in college. Um, I was a natural reader virtually from infancy. So when I did in fact wander into the freelance proofreading and copy editing business, it was with great instincts and a good knack for what was correct and what was not correct, but not a lot of knowledge as to why things are correct or why things are incorrect, or for that matter, what things are called. 
I mean, I, I knew what a noun was and a verb, and I knew the difference between an adverb and an adjective. I knew what a subject was. I knew what a predicate was. I had no idea what the subjunctive was. Um, I had no particular notion of what the passive voice was. So the thing was that when I started doing this work, I realized that it behooved me if I was planning truly on doing it as a profession to learn what it was that I was doing. And so I began, as I was doing the work, to read style books, you know, to read guides on the English language so I could learn all of this stuff, which is important to know. But the truth is that once I had learned it, I was able nearly all the time to go back and forget what everything was called. Because as a copy editor, as a proofreader, when you are looking to, to correct text, when you are looking to improve text, um, it's more important to know what's better than to know what the better thing is called. That makes sense. That makes sense. And to me, that that's a lot like leadership. And, and obviously, the whole reason we're having this conversation is to form a bridge between the language and leadership. And, uh, you know, when it comes to leadership, uh, yes, you may have to go through some management classes. You may have to be educated on certain aspects of the business. But most leaders, when they're in the seat, they're not looking it up, but they're not looking up a guide. They're running by essentially the seats of their pants because a lot of this stuff comes from instincts. And it sounds like that is exactly what served you so well. Well, you know, something that might actually be of, of interest to, to your listeners um, is, is very specific to my role as, as copy chief. Um, I, I am both the copy chief and the managing editor. Uh, of the division. So as, as copy chief, uh, my concern is that all the words are right. As managing editor, there's just lots and lots of interaction with editors and publishers, all of which is about, you know, making those proverbial trains run on time and making sure that we publish books when we're supposed to. And that it's like, oh, did the legal read get done? Yes. Uh, do we know where the flap copy is? Yes. Do we have the blurbs? Sure. You know, that that sort of thing. What's an interesting thing is that I was made copy chief and managing editor at a certain point because I was good at being a production editor. I was good at the words. I was good at making books happen. That is not the same thing as being a person who runs a department. In fact, it has nothing to do with running a department. And I will confess, and any number of my colleagues will, will back me up on this, that I did not have natural instincts as a leader of a group. And it was difficult. It was, it, it was, it was quite difficult for me um, because the idea that Essentially, everybody was supposed to do things the way I wanted them done or the way I would have done them myself. That's not leadership. Now, happily, at a certain point, um, my employers uh, who have a wonderful leadership training program, uh, I only wish I had gotten to it a little sooner, um, sent me off to this intensive leadership training module, as I guess we would call it, uh, with a number of other people who were in similar positions to mine, although, you know, not necessarily copy chiefs and managing editors, but, you know, people who, who ran, uh, uh, who, who, who ran the warehouses, uh, people who were in sales, uh, other editors, but basically people who had people reporting to them. And, I learned it was a it was an absolutely fantastic program, and I learned so much uh, in that time about how to to be a good department head, about about what my responsibilities were not only to the people that I worked for, but to the people that I worked with, and I have over time I think built a department in which all of my many reports are to a great extent 
self-determining, have a wonderful sense of ownership over the work that they do, have cultivated in a process that I would call collaborative, have, have cultivated marvelous instincts as to what things are theirs to take care of and when to call me up to say, I think you need to know about this. And there was a lot of stuff that I used to do in a sort of ritualistic way after I, you know, after I had my big, you know, training, because it wasn't internal yet. Um, but after a while it became, it became second nature. And it's, it's, it's been a wonderful, you know, it's been a wonderful evolution. Yeah. And, you know, what strikes me about that story, Benjamin, is you you mentioned basically trying to get the best out of each of your direct reports, right? You're not looking to form a bunch of mini U's that are lined up across all these divisions. And that's very similar to what a copy editor does, the way you described it earlier. You're looking to bring out the best that a book has to offer. You're not looking to make the author write exactly like you would write. That, that you know, that's, that's, that's beautiful. That's, exa that's exactly it. I mean, I never quite put the two and two together in that way. But yes, in the same way that, that my job and the job of my production editors, insofar as our books are concerned, is, as I often say, as I probably just did say, not to reform somebody else's book into some notion of, well, this is what our department thinks is a good book. It's like, no, our job is to make your book into a perfect version of itself. In the same way, yes, with a, uh, uh, you know, with a consensus in my group as to what we are collectively trying to do and with frequent meetings and discussions about the processes and the evolutions of the English language and all the things that we're doing and sharing lots of information. Yeah, my, my, my job is indeed to make sure that everybody in the department is themselves. And, you know, one of the greatest things that a leader can do in order to help uh, people improve in their jobs and, and maybe even in themselves is to provide feedback. And that's essentially what a copy editor does, a production editor does with an author. You know, they are making suggestions. They're giving them feedback. Now, the author can take it or leave it, I would imagine, unless there's something completely egregious that uh, the copy chief might, might overrule at some point. Um, but talk a little bit about your experience giving feedback to writers and maybe sometimes that's gone well, maybe other times it's been a little difficult. Um, learning how to properly give, learning how to properly give feedback to authors, uh, on their, on their work is something that I learned, um, when I started out working as a proofreader, uh, you know, proofreaders are, are very sort of, uh, I don't know, sort of binary creatures. It's correct or it's incorrect. What you're looking for is, 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 is mistakes. Uh, in those days when we were working on paper and then sent things off to compositors who were actually re-keyboarding the entire manuscript because there was no such thing as a word file yet. So you gave them paper and their job was to, to turn that paper into typeset pages. So, of course, the possibility of errors was huge. So there was a lot to do when you were proofreading. You were looking for, you were looking for what we really think of as typos, mis, mistypings. You know, we tend to think of typos as any sort of error, like, oh, there's a subject verb number problem in that sentence. That's a typo. No, that, that's a mistake. Um, that's, that's a different creature. But as a proofreader, I learned what copy editing was because proofreaders are reading a set of page proofs against a manuscript. And in the manuscript, you were seeing all of this dialogue that was going on between the copy editor and the author. Suggestions for improvement of, 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 of sentences, for tightening things up, uh, every now and then asking a sort of open-ended question that the author might respond to by, in fact, rewriting a passage, but also often 
and this is an important good thing for copy editors to do, if you think that there's something wrong with a passage and you know what you think the passage ought to be, you provide the corrected, your notion of what the corrected version is, which then gives the author the easy option of saying okay or no. Because if you ask an author an open-ended question, the author is just as likely to respond by thinking, yeah, it's fine the way it is. But if you provide an author with just this little gem of an improvement, the author is very likely to say, ooh, I love that. Yes. Okay. And then you make that happen. Um, so that's how I learned how to copy edit. And then I began to do, you know, copy editing work myself, you know, and, 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 and getting better at it. I mean, I, I certainly like to think that I am better at doing a thing I started doing 30 years ago than I was doing it 30 years ago. Um, there are lots of ways to, to address an author on the page in a way that is supportive, sounds supportive, is helpful, that makes it clear from the very beginning that you are listening to what they are trying to do. And that makes them comfortable. And then that makes them receptive. I have found that just about every author that I would think of as a good writer is highly receptive to good copy editing. The adjective good is very important in there in the copy editing. Um, they, they want to make their books better. They want to hear what you have to say. They recognize that nobody is reading them as carefully as you are. I mean, you're reading them down to, you know, just the, the nuclear level. So they're totally into it. It is, unfortunately, authors who are perhaps less sure of the quality of their own writing who will take copy editing as an affront to their talent. And it can get a little hostile every now and then, but that, you know, that really doesn't that that really doesn't happen a lot. I mean, yes, of course, I can pull up stories from the memory banks of 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 angry authors, but it, it when it goes well, it tends to be a very easy process. And an author's not going to say yes every single time. That's not their job. Their job sometimes is to say, that's a nice suggestion, but I kind of like it the way I wrote it in the first place. Um, I, I like to think that as a copy editor, if your approval rate on changes from an author is something in the vicinity of 85 to 92 percent, then you've done a good job. That's impressive. Yeah, that makes sense. And th there's I know there's a, a common interest we have. I've seen it based on your tweets. Uh, of the last month and a half or so, and that is the HBO Max show, Julia. The reason I bring it up is because, not because this is a cooking show, um, but because one of the main characters in the series is Julia Child's editor at, uh, uh, I think it's at Knopf. Yes. And, and even Blanche Knopf herself makes an appearance uh, via Judith Light. Um, what are your impressions of the portrayal of the publishing industry and editors in that series, just by way of anecdote? Um, it was one of the things that I really liked seeing in the show. And, and though I can't necessarily speak to whether or not, you know, that Judith Jones is Judith Jones or that Blanche Knopf is Blanche Knopf. That's not the job of the show. But it is a fair and decent portrayal of, of, of how it works. Um, and, and I was so, I was so moved by the portrait of Judith Jones's wonderful enthusiasm for Julia Child as a writer even outside of the actual writing it's like it's like julia is her person um that it just sort of moved me to send this really sort of gushing text to my own editor <laughs> about about how like well taken care of he always makes me feel you know as as a writer uh and and you know that 
that's a big that's a big thing about uh, about editors there uh, you know it's like i i am not an acquiring editor i'm not an editor like judith like judith jones and one thing that i do know uh because of the you know the in-depth conversations that i have had with editors over the years it's like it's a different kind of brain what they sort of do um um, not only insofar as the text is concerned, that they are addressing, you know, big arc items like, you know, pace and characterization. And I want more of this character and I want less of that character. And it's like, this is this is extraneous, that that sort of stuff. As a copy editor, it's like you're reading paragraph by paragraph. You know, your, your job is not to say, oh, let's get rid of chapter 17. That's not your job. Um, but one thing that I did certainly learn as as an author in progress and subsequently is that editors are there to encourage you to be again to this is a sort of theme we keep hitting here to be your best self and to make you feel safe uh and then also to like you know give you a good kick in the kick in, kick kick in the keister when that's called for as well of course, of course. Well, and that brings to mind, um, you know, you must have had your own editor for Dreyer's English, uh, and I can't even imagine that individual's uh, responsibilities knowing that he's editing the copy chief. Um, talk a little bit about your relationship with that person and how that worked out as far as your book's publication goes. Um, I, I, had, I had two editors by the time my book uh, was published simply because um, the the first editor to whom I who, to whom I'd been assigned, uh, you know, had one of those dazzling opportunities that even his own boss said, "You have to take this." So um, so the one editor was replaced by another editor, and I had gorgeous relationships with both of them. And 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 to be honest. Once we sort of got through the process of helping me figure out what my voice was supposed to sound like on the page, the actual editing itself was kind of on the light side. You know, it was like, this is what you're doing. Okay. It's like, and you know what you're doing. And there were occasional requests to, to, to clarify a point, um, uh, to, to cut back on, you know, uh, on certain excesses that are natural uh, to my voice. Um, but but that was that was fairly uneventful. The 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 interesting thing was being copy edited, and um, and and the one request that I, I I did, of course, I had to assign my book to a production editor in my department who was going to do the job of of getting it through the process, and he was is my my right hand man on just about every level, including literally his office is to, was to my right back in the days when I used to go to the office. Um, and, and, and he did a splendid job. And I did say though, authors don't always do this. I mean, every now and then an author says, oh, I want the same copy editor I worked with before, uh, which we tried to accommodate or, oh, my friend, the writer, said that this person was their copy editor can you can i have that person too because my author friend thought this person was brilliant so it was not it was not inappropriate for me to say dennis can you get bonnie thompson to be my copy editor i i would like bonnie to do it because i had hired bonnie as uh, to to be a copy editor back in the days when i was a production editor she was one of my you know my go-to freelancers so he did hire her and we had she and I only one conversation before she got started. And I basically said, Bonnie, look, I am not interested in your rubber stamping my manuscript or being very approving. I am interested in your doing exactly the sort of incisive work that I used to hire you to do all the time. So please roll up your sleeves, get in there, challenge me every single time I need to be challenged on anything. And she did. And it was fun, and I enjoyed it, and I think she enjoyed it too. And it's a, it's a remarkable work product that you have uh, put out. I mean, uh, you, you mentioned voice there previously. Um, your voice is loud and clear. 
in this book. And based on the interviews I've heard of you and your interactions on Twitter and the book, it's a very consistent voice, right? So, so bravo to you, brava to, to Bonnie for uh, putting this all together in a way that really, really helps your voice come through. And to me, that's an incredible uh, part of leadership. When you're communicating with your people, whether it's in written communication and Slack and email and memos, or it's through a video call or a, a town hall to your employees, that voice, in order to be trusted, should be consistent throughout. It, it should be consistent and it, and it should be, and it should be authentic. Yeah. Um, and and I and I do think I mean one of the things that 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 I'm I'm pleased with is that my writing voice and my voice voice and my Twitter voice and my work email voices they're all more or less the same voice. Um, you know, the 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 nicest thing that happened when we were in the when we were in the process of getting the book done, you know, that, that last nine months, you know, on the way to the finish line was, um, giving the bound galley to my mother who had not at that point read any of it, but I gave her the bound galley so that she could have her fun with it. And she read it. And her first reaction to it was, she said, it sounds just like you. Yes. <laughs> and that was perfect. And the other thing, of course, is when I meet people who know me because of the book, but have not spoken with me, um, the nicest thing that they will often say to me is, you sound just like it. There you go. Mission accomplished. Exactly. Um, well, I'm going to ask you, if you would, to read an excerpt from your book, and, and hopefully this will be a bit of a transition, because I have more, uh, let's say, uh, philosophical questions for you after you read this uh, excerpt, and it's from the introduction. Yes, I, 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 I'd be happy to, and, and, and as, as I was saying to you before we got started in earnest, this is, I, I, I love my stories. Um, and this is, this is, this is one of my, this is one of my favorite stories. Um, and in fact, this section begins with the sentence, or excuse me, with the sentence fragment, which reminds me of a story. A number of years ago, I was invited to a party at the home of a novelist whose book I'd worked on. It was a blazingly hot summer afternoon and there were perhaps more people in attendance than the little walled-in garden of this swank Upper East Side townhouse could comfortably accommodate. As the novelist's husband was a legendary theater and film director, it's not name-dropping if I don't drop the names, right? There were in attendance more than a few noteworthy actors and actresses. So while sweating profusely, I was also getting in a lot of happy gawking. My hostess thoughtfully introduced me to one actress in particular, one of those wonderfully grand theatrical types who seem on stage to be eight feet tall and who turn out, more often than not, to be quite compact, as this one was, and surprisingly lovely and delicate looking for a woman who'd made her reputation playing for lack of a better word, dragons. It seemed that the actress had written a book. I've written a book, she informed me. A memoir, as it turned out. And I must tell you that when I was sent the copy-edited manuscript and saw it all covered with scrawls and symbols, I was quite alarmed. No, I exclaimed, you don't understand. By this time, she'd taken hold of my wrist, and though her grip was light, I didn't dare to find out what would happen if I attempted to extricate myself from it. But as I continued to study what my copy editor had done, she went on, in a whisper that might easily have reached a theater's uppermost seats had she wanted it to, I began to understand. 
She leaned in close, staring holes into my skull, and I was hopelessly enthralled. Tell me more, I said. Pause for effect. Copy editors, she intoned, and I can still hear every crisp consonant and orotund vowel all these years later, are like priests, safeguarding their faith. Now, that's a benediction. So just to, just by the way, to, 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 fill, it, to fill in the blanks, the, uh, the actress was, um, was Zoe Caldwell, uh, who was a great stage actress who uh, uh, originated on Broadway the role of Jean Brody in the prime of his Jean Brody, who was very famous for playing uh, Maria Callas in, uh, um, in Masterclass. Uh, she was also a very memorable Medea. Uh, and my, my hosts uh, were a, a lovely woman, the novelist Frances Kazan, and her husband, her late husband, uh, was the director Ilya Kazan of Streetcar Named Desire and On the Waterfront and all those other things. So when I say that it was, it was star-studded, it was star-studded. I, I, was, I, was, I was very happy. <laughs> yeah, and, and that is the ultimate uh, benediction. And, and that phrase is, is really what, what stuck with me. Copy editors are like priests safeguarding their faith. Um, and that, that's why I want to go into maybe a little more of the spiritual now, if you will. Um, I'm wondering what your perception or perspective is on the language that we choose as leaders, the, the language that perhaps we repeat, that we use in our writing, in our speaking. Um, I'm thinking about, um, you know, is there a connection between clear prose and moral clarity? You know, are we trying to hide things with certain words we use or phrases we, we repeat or perhaps don't use? I, I do... I do firmly believe that there is a morality to to, to good writing, um, because good writing is about speaking of the truth, and 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 again uh, to 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 get back to my to get back to my very wise mother, um, because of how long it took me to to write the book, much longer than any of us thought it was going to. Uh, the book was published in 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 late January of 2019, uh, which was in the middle of the previous presidential administration. So we were all at that point, as far as I was concerned, up to our necks in the daily misuse of language to mislead over and over and over and over again. And I remember my mother saying, your timing is perfect because what your, what your book is indeed saying is that whether, you know, whether you say it or not, is that there is a moral clarity, uh, to, to, to good writing. Um, and, and, and I, I believe that very much, uh, to, to go to one of the other great minds in, in my life, um, my husband's, um, now he's he's a psychotherapist and and I can't remember how this 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 first came up but it was something that he taught me that I have used over and over again um particularly in in my work communication particularly when I'm talking uh you know to to my reports when I'm talking to anybody actually he said he reminded me he taught me that any time that you are about to utter a sentence that is don't do this, don't do that, not, 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 not. Try to figure out a way to recast the sentence into a positive thought. You know, even if you're not necessarily fooling anybody when you say something like, well, next time, let's try to do blah, blah, blah. It's like, but you are, you are taking that sense of, crime and punishment out of the conversation and in trying to address things in a positive way you're going to get a better reaction and i also do really think that that lesson which again you know for me was one of those sort of you know ritualistic things try to remember to do this try to remember to do this uh eventually became second nature to me and and you know what it changed me 
I mean, that was one of the things that I, I'm not quite sure I, I, I made the point about one of the upshots of this leadership training is that I really feel like it made me into a different person than the person I used to be, a better one. And, and that you, <laughs> if that's possible, right? Uh, yeah, no, I, I think that's very consistent from what I've heard. Um, you know, one of our uh, first guests on the show here was Dr. Harry Cohen, who talks about heliotropic leadership, encouraging people to be the sun, not the salt, right? As, if you look at sunflowers, they, they follow the path of the sun across the sky during the day. And what happens when you put salt on a plant's roots? Well, it shrivels up. It's the same kind of thing, the positivity and the negativity that uh, we see in the workplace, through feedback, in writing, etc. I think it's all a very consistent message about how to achieve the most or the best out of people is by showing them how to be their best selves. Well, I mean, you know, my, my book, which is supposed to be an attractive, instructive manual, um, I, I realized early on that I wanted it to be a positive experience for the people who were reading it. And even if on occasion, yes, I do bring out the knots and the don'ts because well, just because you need them sometimes and, 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 and because you can't be, you know, Pollyanna and Heidi all the time. Um, I like to think that when I do that, I had sort of established my my authentic niceness so that when I'm when I'm doing the gentlest of wrist slaps, there's a bit of a wink that goes with it. You know, it's like it becomes a conspiracy of communication. And um, and I, I, I like to think that the book is kind and inviting and positive and encouraging. And people have told me that it is. So I guess for at least some percentage of my readers, um, it works. Um, so, yeah. And Well, I think by the time we get to the negatives, the knots, the things to avoid, you have so ingratiated yourself to us that we would feel great disappointment should we let you down. That, that, Let's put it like that. That's, that's nice. nice. <laughs> <laughs> um, and, you know, I'm just I'm thinking of the title of the book alone. It must be uh, incredibly jarring to have a whole language named after you. <laughs> Dryers, English. Uh, talk a little bit about the selection of the title for this. Um, it's 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 also a fun story. Um, when we went to contract, the book had the provisional title, The Last Word which was really just sort of pulling a title out of, out of air. Now, now, now my, 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 my famous, my, my famous husband's response to that was, that's awful. <laughs> He's like, I really hate that. And I was like, I don't really like it, but it's what it is right now. And of course, it's also the name of what's his name's TV show. Lawrence O'Donnell. Oh, right. Right. Somebody like that. So I, I guess we knew for a very long time that that was probably not going to be the title of the book, uh, but it, but but the, you know the, the title was the least of the concerns. At one point, however, one, one of my little online chums said to me, "I have a really good idea for the title and subtitle of your book," and I was like, "Okay, lay it on me." He said the title will be English, and I said, "Well, that's." That's something. And he said the sub the subtitle will be some notes I, some notes on clarity. Some notes on let's say it was some notes on clarity, correctness, and style. Some notes on. I like that part, the some notes on. So we we changed the we changed the we we put that in the system as the title and the subtitle of the book. Oh, I'm sorry, I forgot the important part. Uh, he said, insofar as the title was concerned, he said, people will refer to the book as Dreyer's English. The same way everybody calls the elements of style. Nobody calls it the elements of style. Everybody calls it strunk and white. White, absolutely. Said, so people will call it Dreyer's English. So, oh, ha, 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 that's very funny. Well, the thing is, 
I made the joke. We made it became a sort of running joke that we were going to publish the book as English and that people would call it Dreyer's English. And at at one point, my 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 publisher and my editor came to me and said, "We're calling the book Dreyer's English." Everybody he said, wins. He said, "We've talked it over with sales. We, you know, we like we've talked it over with marketing. We've talked it over with publicity. Everybody likes it. That's what we're calling it." And I was like, "Okay, that's amazing." Oh, yeah, what a yeah. great story. And it, and it works. I mean, boy, how memorable is that? Um, speaking of memorable things, um, I wanted to, to kind of do a final bridge here into the intersection of language and music. Uh, you are very clearly uh, a fan of musicals, Broadway, Hollywood musicals, etc. Um, and many people have correctly noted that music itself is a language. It is a universal language that speaks to people regardless of what our native tongues are. Um, can you talk a little bit about perhaps what music intertwined with language does to us, uh, does to us either through making us feel a certain way or expressing things in a way we might not otherwise do? Um. I'm thinking right now of of a time years and years ago when I was listening fairly regularly to one of my favorite operas by Puccini, which is La Fanciulla del West, The Girl of the Golden West. And there's this thing that happens in the very last scene. It's sort of the moment in the opera when the tension and the conflict is beginning to evaporate in favor of a sort of redemptive, collective, happy ending that is going to wrap up the opera. And it's this wonderful moment. And every time I would listen to it, I would get this sort of like shiver down my spine. And I remember asking a composer friend of mine about that moment. And he said, and I, I can't remember the specifics of it now, but he sort of told me scientifically, musicology, uh, making up words now. He, I mean, he told me what it was that Puccini was doing in that moment, as if it were a mathematical formula. Um, he said, but this is what it is, and this is why it does that thing to your spine. And I thought that was really sort of marvelous, even if, like the rules of grammar, I immediately forgot it. Um, there is something that music does. There is something that great writing does that does engage your mind on a conscious level, you know, I'm reading this thing and I'm thinking, oh, I love that. I love those sentences. You know, it's like I'm having such a good time here. I love the way I love the way the tune works. You know, I love the way the tune and the lyrics go together. Um, but there's all this sort of magic that goes on underneath that is not necessarily definable. And it's not only indefinable to the to the listener and to the reader, but it's probably also indefinable to the composer and the writer. The Puccini example all to one side. I mean, and the thing is, it's, it's, it's my composer friend analyzed the passage, but did Puccini know that that what he, what, did he know that that's what he was doing when he was doing it? No, it was just like he was writing the moment the way he heard it in his head. And it is that sort of undefinable, I was going to say indefinable, no, undefinable magic that occurs underneath that I like to think in music and writing both can, can and should stay a little mysterious. It's not necessary to, to have a conscious understanding of absolutely everything that's going on. Yeah, yeah. We don't need to overanalyze it because that really takes some of the magic away. Yeah. 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 
Did that, did that, did that, that sort, sort of answer the question? question? I, you, I think you phrased that in a way I, uh, it obviously makes great sense, but a way I haven't thought of it before. Uh, and I do enjoy plenty of music myself, and I've had that shiver up the spine. I, but again, to, to be able to kind of parse it, I, I don't spend a lot of time there. I just know it makes me feel a certain way, and that's good. And just the way I seek out certain writers, not because I say, ah, oh, this is great writing, it's just because they know how to tell a story or they know dialogue or you know whatever it happens to be it works and when it works you know it yeah yeah exactly exactly um now there there have been instances and you you actually outlined a few in the book of um let's say uh phrases that are not correct in the written form but that make it into musical form and we give them a pass uh, I'm thinking about Gershwin's potato, potato, right? Who says potato? Uh, uh, as, as equally as in My Fair Lady, uh, from whence in uh, Guys and Dolls. It seems to me that particularly with music, because it is so ubiquitous, because it spreads so easily from person to person, there's a danger of some of these incorrect phrases becoming ingrained into our uh, society. Uh, how do you view that as someone who is a guardian of the English? You know, I, I think that, um, you know, when we, we you know, to, to go specifically back to the examples that you were that you were citing, I mean, we'll, we'll, we'll start in the middle with with the Alan J. Lerner phrase from from My Fair Lady and the comment from a friend of mine the other day that if you added up all of the grammatical errors that Alan J. Lerner committed over the course of his career, you'd have a book. <laughs> um, so that's Alan J. Lerner in the middle. But you've got Frank Lesser in Guys and Dolls writing Take Back Your Mink to from whence it came, which is one of the great grammar jokes of all time, um, because it's just so layered on of unnecessary words, but it's perfect for this sort of tawdry little nightclub song. And then we go back to Ira Gershwin writing, let's say, let, let's call the whole thing off, saying, you know, you say tomato and I say tomato, you say potato and I say potato. And it's like, but he does such a good job of convincing you that he knows what he's doing that it took me decades to realize that no one in England says potato. They do say tomato, but they all say potato just like we do. But it's like he made you believe what he was doing. So that's the that's the wonderment of uh, 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 of of lyric writing of any kind of writing. Of, of jokes, it's it's getting that sort of conspiratorial thing going on, or just fooling somebody into into making them believe uh, believe something. So we've got we've got musicians, we've got we've got composers, we've got lyricists, we have on stage you know magicians, conjurers. It's like it's it's all we're all the same sort of group of people. But to to go to your very specific uh, reference to me as a guardian of English. That is really one of the most important things for me. And it's the one thing that we haven't we haven't touched on yet is that is that my my job as copy chief, my job as the guardian of English is not necessarily to police English. That's that's absolutely not my job. English is going to do what English wants to do. My job as a copy chief is to pay attention to everything that English is trying to do, to, to realize that, to, to read what writers are doing, and to try to help them and thus help all of us navigate the English language as it is evolving so that it is useful and, most important, clear. I mean, I always like to say that, you know, whatever my notions of correctness are concerned, that they exist entirely in the service of clarity of writing. So lots of things in English change. And certainly lots of things of English have changed in the 30 odd years that I have been professionally working in the English language. 
And my job is to to preserve the best of what we think of as standard consensus English, the things that all of us who are writing more or less agree to most of the time, to fold in that whole notion of, yeah, once I've learned the rules, I can break them, which is, you know, a very sort of glib thing to say, but it's a great thing to say because it's true. It's like, you, you, can, you can mess around with language as much as you want. It's a really good thing to mess around with language once you actually know how it's supposed to work, but also to help it along, to make it just to make it what it needs to be, you know, and and in the uh, you know, in the in in the world that in the world that we occupy right now. I mean, you know, it's like one of the one of the one of the biggest changes in English in the last few years that I have participated in you know, at first sort of regarding it as a problem that needed to be dealt with, a problem that needed to be solved, or, you know, it's like, how am I going to deal with this? But ultimately realizing what I was a part of, and, and that would be the, the rise of the use of the non-binary they, which can be difficult for, for, for people who are not used to it to get used to it. The one thing that always gets my back up, the one thing that I always balk at is 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 people who are uh, trumpeting changes in the language and they take this sort of tone of this is it. Get used to it. You know what? You're not helping. You're not helping anybody. You're just making people feel self-conscious and bad about their inability to immediately snap to on something that they are not used to. So it is one of the things that, you know, that, that I try to do, which is to, it is, is to help language evolve. And again, in the most positive possible way. Um, but these things are tricky. You know, it's like the, the, the adoption of the non-binary non they was a challenge for me um, as a person, as a writer, as a copy editor, as, you know, as all the things that I am. But it's, it's something that you have to fit you have to figure out i mean as i as i as i have said when i uh when i was first introduced to a new colleague whose pronouns were they and them it it was a challenge to me and i spent a lot of time doing everything i could to not refer to this colleague by pronouns to refer to the colleague only by the colleague's name you know that editor, the new, you know, it's like, but at a certain point, I remember it's like the word they popped out of my mouth when I was talking about this editor. And I was like, oh, thank God that's over. <laughs> you know, but it's like, but it was a process. Right. You know? yeah. Right. Well, I mean, I've, I've resisted that for years in writing. I was always of the he slash she uh, mentality or, you know, certainly, uh, you know, the uh, typical way that most things were referred to by default was just he. Yeah, uh, yeah. You know, a, the, the boss was always referred to as a he. And in my own writing, and my own speaking, I make sure I pepper it with she as equally as he. And in many cases, now I'm just using they. I have gotten over that natural aversion to not matching uh, numbers with, uh, with the tense of the, the, the pronoun. Well, you know, when, when, when I started out, that was like, that was the beginning of the end of the so-called genderless he that we were all very used to. Uh, because it was the way it was the way English was written, you know, at least through the entire 20th century. So basically everything that we were all living through and writers were really wrestling with that. And they were doing the S slash H E thing. They were doing the he or she thing. They were alternating by paragraph, which like really makes you sort of dizzy at a certain point. There were lots of other sort of copy editorial tricks that you can, you know, you can do. I mean, there's, there's the very easy trick of pluralizing a subject so that its natural pronoun is then they. There are certainly almost always ways to, to rewrite a sentence to eliminate the need for a pronoun altogether, which is a, a nice trick when you can pull it off. Sure. But this is the, this is the important thing. My, particular distaste, and now we're not talking about the non-binary, they were simply talking about your garden variety 
singular they. A, a student should be able to do whatever they want. That, that kind of they. At a certain point, I recognized that this had taken root in 21st century writing. Beyond the notion of the thing that everybody likes to say, the singular they has been the, used in the English language since the 12th century, get over yourselves. It's like, again, you're not helping. It's like, I don't spell like Chaucer. I don't grammar like Chaucer either. But it was like, it's here, it's happening. And I remember very well having a meeting with my group one day and we discussed this and I said, here's the deal. If we get a manuscript in which the author has quite clearly using this, used the singular they, again, we're not talking about the non-binary they, which is inarguable. You don't correct somebody's pronouns. But if a writer is using the singular they, we are no longer going to try to copy edit around it. Don't query it. Don't try to fix it. It's like, you can query inconsistencies, sure. You can query lack of clarity, sure. But we are not, we are not opposed to it. We do not view it any longer as a problem. And that just sort of became policy. And I think right there, you've put your, your finger on the nub of it, that the English language, like leadership, is an exercise in flexibility. Yes. Well, Benjamin Dreyer, author of Dreyer's English, An Utterly Correct Guide to Clarity and Style. Thank you so much for joining us here on Timeless Leadership. Thank you. I, I had a wonderful time having this conversation. The utility and clarity of language holds a direct parallel to the utility and clarity of leadership. Leaders aren't there to nitpick and criticize, but to help others become better versions of themselves. In that sense, it's the language of love. Thank you for joining us and for being an advocate for timeless and principled leadership, whenever and wherever you find it. I'm Scott Monty. Until next time, may you dream more, learn more, do more, and become more for you our leader.